The true born-again believer is marked by many things as a result of his salvation. Uh, there are tangible changes that he experiences and that the world notices as a result of his relationship with God. And today I want us to focus on one transformational element that is undeniable in light of the Bible concerning the believer, the life of a saint, and it may be shocking for us to hear, but it is true nonetheless. It is the new desire for and a shift of focus in something as simple as singing. Singing. Yes, that, that's a mark of a Christian's life. In fact, that is a unique element of the Christian faith that we are a singing people. And we are part of a singing religion. And so when we see this emphasis, even on music continually being created, that is not a bad thing. That is evidence of what the Bible talks about concerning the church. And singing is much of the Christian's life and the expression of his faith. And its purpose, I believe, is far more significant than we might think. And so the purpose of today is to explore what the Bible, what the scriptures has to say about the Christian and his relationship with song. And there's so much to say about it because the Bible has so much to say about it. But I simply want us to touch on three dimensions of singing. First one, why do we do it? What did we just do the past half an hour? We sang, but why? Second dimension, how do we do it? Or how should we do it? Does the Bible give us instructions? Does it give it guidelines to know how to express song? And lastly, what happens when we do it? So why, how, and what? And the Bible has answers for all of these questions. But before we get into these dimensions, I want to touch on some objections to the subject of singing. And the reason being is because we don't want any person to sit through this message and to have walls just shoot up and to think that this teaching may not apply to them because of one or maybe all three of these objections that I'm going to present. And I'm sure there's more, but these are three that I've personally even heard in casual conversation or even some people trying to go head-to-head -head theologically. So here's one objection concerning singing. God doesn't care about singing as much as he does other spiritual expressions and disciplines. Uh, people make this objection in light of some verses in the Bible where God seems disinterested or even disgusted when his people are attempting to express their faith in song when they are lacking in other areas of their faith. And so some people will point to, you don't have to turn there, but will point to a text like in Amos 5, 23, where it says, Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See? God doesn't care about singing as much as he does this or that or this. But that's not what the text is saying. In fact, this shows that he, he cares about singing. He's just not interested in hypocritical singing. A.W. Tozer put it this way, that Christians don't tell lies. They just sing them in church. And it's true. 
But this does not mean that God has devalued sin or, or has put it in a different category. God esteems it. God commands it. God expects it from us while also expecting other things to be in line. But that's true of any spiritual expression or discipline. God is not interested in any type of relational discipline in our lives if other areas are lacking. That's not just true for singing. That's true for anything, even prayer. So you have a verse like what we talked about on Friday in Proverbs 28.9, that if anyone turns his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Can you imagine? And so singing is important just as any spiritual discipline is. To think that it isn't fails to understand that singing has a vital role in how we relate to God. Singing has a vital role in how we bless one another, and singing has a vital role in how we stand before an unbelieving world. And to disqualify that by saying that it is less valuable is to, unfortunately, miss out on God's fullness of his will for our lives and our experience of our relationship with him. So we have to remove that objection. Singing is important. There's a whole book on it. It's sprinkled throughout the Bible. It's there for a reason. Number two, my personality does not allow me to sing. Now, I understand that this is more of a personal objection, but it's an objection nonetheless. And I bring this up because at this point, some can have conflicting thoughts throughout this entire message say, this doesn't really apply to me because my personality doesn't allow me to express myself in this way. Or there are others who are more courageous with their voice who are more open with expressing themselves. And I'm not just that kind of a person, so I can't really give myself fully to this. Or, here's a major one, I come from a church background that did not emphasize the importance of personal and corporate singing. So let me just get on through this. I'll show up maybe a little bit late so I can get to the real thing, and that's the message. The goal of this message is not to pitch my personal preference on why singing is important. It's to come to the Bible and to see that the standard that God places on song for all cultures, all backgrounds, all races, all people of different spiritual maturity levels. I want you to be invited to open your heart regardless of your personality and regardless of your denominational bent and to see just simply what the Bible says. Now the goal of this message is not for anybody in here to put on a performance so that they can prove the genuineness of their faith by being more expressive in their worship. That's not the goal. That's a terrible goal. We're not here to fake it till we make it, and nor are we here to fake it so other people can think that we have faith. The goal of this message is to understand that the Holy Spirit can do such a work in you and me that singing will be like breathing when you and I understand how our hearts can connect the truth to such a way that it will pull a song out of our souls. That's the goal. And let's be honest with ourselves, can we? Let's just be honest with ourselves this morning. Next time you show up to your favorite sports team or your friend's wedding, step outside of yourself and realize that your personality allows you to express passion and emotion more than you think. Objection number three. The emphasis of singing is more of an Old Testament thing than it is a new. This is a common one, believe it or not. People will compare both testaments and say, well, you see it more frequently 
commanded in the Old Testament and more expressive in the Old Testament. And we just don't see that in the New Testament. And people go as far to say, because it's an Old Testament emphasis, we should not try to interpret or get some insight from there and how we do church. Now, I hope that we'll have enough time to deal with that objection throughout the message. But I just want to make this simple observation. Last time I checked, I never saw Christ fulfilling singing in his coming. I mean, what do you mean? I mean, I understand if one were to say that sacrifices, animal sacrifices don't apply because Christ is a substance and that was the shadow. I understand certain feasts not being practice necessarily because Christ was a substance and those were the shadows but I don't see anything in the Bible where singing was a shadow and Christ was the fulfillment of singing I see a continuation of singing and I see the New Testament framework taking what's from the old and applying it to our lives today for the rest of our lives until Jesus comes back that's what I see so unless there's a text in the New Testament that says that Christ fulfilled singing then we can have a discussion but I don't see that. Now that those objections are dealt with, let's deal with the dimensions of singing. Number one, why do we sing? Why do we do it? Here's a better question. As you and I sit here this morning, think to yourself where the Bible first records corporate singing by a body of those who are of a faith community. And this is a good point to make this Disclaimer, this message is going to focus on congregational singing as much more than personal singing. The Bible talks about both, but we're going to see the emphasis in the Bible on what happens and what should happen when, when we get together like this and lift our voices. Why, how, and what happens? And I say that because it's important for us as a church to evaluate where we're at on this aspect of our faith, on this facet. And it's going to require, listen, every individual to respond faithfully in order for the corporate to experience it genuinely. Why do we do it? And I think thinking about where the Bible first records a group of faithful people who believe in the same God, express song, will, will, will help us a little bit. So think, don't, nobody answered, I know it's not a Bible study, but think, where in the Bible is it first described? And it's very close to the first book, but it's actually found in the book of Exodus chapter 15. And I would invite you to turn there to see. Because if this is the first place where the Bible records about singing, then it invites us to investigate why the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, places it here in this moment. And in Exodus 15, verse 1, it tells us very clearly. Then Moses... And the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and then you have about 18 verses that describe a song. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Well, the first word is then. So I got to look past the chapter division and see what happened before that caused the song to erupt from the people. And what I see is in verse 30 of chapter 14. What does it say? Listen to these words carefully. Thus the Lord saved Israel. That day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's very simple. Salvation was the cause for the song. Deliverance was the cause for the song. An experience of redemption was the cause for the song. 
when this group of people saw God's mighty hand intervene on their behalf to deliver them from the bondage of Pharaoh and the slavery of Egypt, they did not just say how awesome God was. They sang how awesome God was. This was the response. See, singing is not just an experience in itself. Singing is the response to a life-changing experience known as salvation. And where singing differs from speech is simply this. Singing engages the emotions, whereas speech is limited to convey. There is something about communicating my love, my gratitude, my adoration towards someone or something in song in which mere speech is limited in doing. And this is why I believe God created song. It's because it reaches down deep into the soul and it, and it pulls something greater than me just communicating truths. This is how we're wired. And this is why we live in a culture that sings love songs. Because to say it is one thing, but to bring music and to bring a melody and to bring rhymes does something else. There's a, there's a greater expression of it. And God in his wisdom applies this to us in expressing our love for him. They sang. And I would argue that the more someone understands God's salvation, which includes his wisdom and his power and his mercy, the more they will feel stirred to sing about it. Psalms 96 tells us very clearly, verse 1 to 2, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Do we see it? Do we see the connection between singing to the Lord based on a revelation of his salvation? It's right there. He's not saying sing, 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 oh, now, now preach. He's saying tell of his salvation through song. That's what he's saying very clearly. And so great is God's salvation that it will cause the heart to create new songs to be sung in order to express it. In other words, because his mercies are many, the church will forever renew their song with freshness, with a new tune, and with assembly of new words to declare ancient truths about the goodness of God. In fact, these songs are not just merely devotional. They are proclamation. They're proclamation. And let's not make the mistake to think that the Israelites sang in Exodus 15 because of only the experience they had in the moment. You know what I mean by that? Let's not think that their singing was appropriate only as an immediate response to their salvation. We have to believe that it was the appropriate expression throughout their journey with God. Because we can, we can explain that away to say, well, they were so passionate that they sang, but we don't see them singing afterwards. Listen to this verse in Hosea. In Hosea 2.15, when Israel went away from God, when Israel was apostate, when Israel was an idolatry, and God opens up his heart to a people that walked away from him, and he he made this claim. He made this promise, in fact, that he will bring his people back. And this was God's desire in bringing them back. He says in Hosea 2.15, And there I will give her her vineyards, 
and make this valley of Achor a deep hope. Look at this. And there she, being Israel, the people that were saved by him, and there shall she answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get your heart back in place with me. I'm going to revive you. And this is my desire, that you would speak to me the same way you spoke to me when you came out of Egypt. But how did they speak when they came out of Egypt? They didn't speak. They sang. And God's like, I want to revive that song in your heart again. Because it pleases God. It delights God. It reflects who he is. As we know in the scripture that one day God says it will, he will sing over his people, declaring the value that we have in his eyes. And for God to declare his value over us by singing, surely it is reflective on our part to sing of his value towards us by singing. And so he says, I'm going to revive the song in your heart. That's what I want to hear again. We sing because we're saved. We sing because we know something of his redemption and his power. God wanting to revive his people to sing tells us the value that he has on this facet of our faith. And time does not permit us to see how salvation is not only a theme, it is the starting point for song. Oh, we can sing about his creation like the Psalms do, like we just did. We can sing about his practical provisions in our day-to-day we can sing about the glories that are to come when Jesus returns and redeems his bride there is so much to sing about but surely salvation is the starting point and that's why when you got saved there was a new appetite for worship because when the Holy Spirit came into you as the scripture tells us a person truly who is filled with the Holy Spirit has a singing spirit they want to make melody in their hearts to the Lord Just talking about God, yes, as wonderful as it is, is not enough. There is something in which the the soul, the the depths of the heart says, "I I need to sing to him. And this is why we sing, because we're saved. It's as simple as that. And we see that from the moment that it was introduced to us in the Bible. But now we come to the second dimension, which is not why we sing, but how we should sing. Now, when it comes to the why we should sing, it's not that controversial. I'm sure everybody in here is bopping their head saying, amen, yeah, we should sing. We're Christians. This is in the Bible. I can't deny it. Where the the friction comes now amongst believers is in this dimension, and it's how we should sing. This is where you have battles. This is where you have church division, actually. I get the why we should sing, but the, the how we should sing, oh, this is where opinions come, left, right, and center. But let's lay aside our opinions and even our preferences, And just come to the Bible and see what the scriptures have to say about this facet of singing. You know what's interesting about the Bible concerning singing? More generally about church order of service, we don't have specific guidelines. In other words, we don't see a chapter in Corinthians, so to speak, where Paul says, okay, this is how you're supposed to do church. Okay, church, for all ages, three songs in the beginning, 40 to 50 minute message, Two songs in the end. Offering, you can do it before or after. That's up to you. And uh, breaking of bread every week. Go. We don't see that. What we do see is that the Holy Spirit gives the church necessary ingredients for the gathering of the saints. And hear this. God in his wisdom gives us the freedom to order those components 
in the best way that will benefit the local body. In other words, God gives the church flexibility, hear this, flexibility as long as it's in order and it's done in dignity. Flexibility with order and dignity. And so that's why you have some churches, believe it or not, that don't do worship before the message. They do all their singing after the message. So if you show up late, you can't say, well, we're going to miss a few songs. You're missing 10 minutes of the message. And they, they want people to simply respond to the word by singing. That's not a sin. That is not a sin. That's the flexibility of the local body. And they, they see in, in their leadership, they thought that this is the best way to do it. Okay. That's not how we do it, but that's fine. And that's why you have some people that break bread every week and some people that break bread once a month. Okay. Is one sinning? No. The Bible gives flexibility as long as it's done in order and in dignity. Yet, there is specific guidelines that the Bible gives us to work with that are non-negotiable, and even with singing. So I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Colossians 3. Colossians 3.16. And see what Paul says to the churches. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's a clear instruction. Here's the ingredients that the Holy Spirit gives his church. And the first thing we should notice, number one, is the variety of expression of song. He says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, to try to define and differentiate these things will be a task in itself. And I don't believe that's the focus of this text. I believe what the Holy Spirit wants to let us know is that there are different ways to sing in church. There are different expressions of singing in church. There's a variety. There's a banquet. You can explore these things. And, and I think what Paul is here focusing on is not necessarily the style. I think the main focus, the main drive is the substance. That's what he says in the beginning. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's not just saying read your Bible a lot and memorize some verses. It's in the context to singing. There's a connection between the word of Christ dwelling in me richly and how you and I are supposed to sing to the Lord. And so when we take the variety of singing with the substance, here's the understanding. Express it how you want. Hold out there. Unless it's distracting. Okay, the moment it becomes distracting, we're in trouble. But express it how you want. The music, though, and the style serves the Scripture-saturated truths being declared. It serves it. And so it takes biblical truth. And the music, whether it's a psalm or a hymn or a spiritual song, the music assists those truths in order for the people to better declare them sing them, and even memorize them. So this is what we see here. We see a coupling. We don't see one or the other. We see a merging. And we see that there is the substance and the style that serves it to the people so that they can better understand what God wants us to understand, and that is to be taught truth through song. It is a powerful tool. It is a powerful tool. It's a teaching tool. 
Some of you in here memorize songs from your kids, even in Sunday school, because there is a little tune to it. God knows this. Our brains are wired this way, and he gives it as an instruction to the church to say, yes, I'm glorified when you sing to me, but you're going to benefit when you have these truths ingrained in your mind because you sang it. At this point, I would like to address the worship team from the pulpit and then the congregation separately. The worship team and the congregation separately. Worship team. According to 1 Corinthians 14, 26, the Bible says that within the church, there are some who are instructed to use songs, to use songs, specifically hymns, but not limited to that, with the purpose of building up the body. The purpose of songs being exercised as a gift within the church has in mind, God's mind, to build up the church. So let me say this, the rest of the congregation is counting on you on a weekly basis to come with meaningful, biblically sound and passionate worship in a way that will help us express our devotion to Christ. To neglect this service is to ultimately hinder how we as a church will experience what God wants us to experience in singing. So I say, choose your songs wisely. Choose your songs prayerfully. Open your Bible and see if it lines up with the word of God. Consider if these songs are able to be sung on a congregational level. Can this be sung by other people or is this more for the personal listening ear? Realize that not just choosing songs wisely, but coming to sing must be done in a certain way as well. And I believe the best way that the team here that seeks to give their gifts to building up the body, I believe the best way that the body can benefit is when you lead us in worship by worshiping. Worship. Worship in your private lives and let that fragrance come onto the pulpit. Worship in such a way in which you will disappear. You say, how do I do that? I'm trying to do that. This is the best way. Worship. You know, it's an amazing phenomenon. I challenge you to do this if you're going downtown today. Just make it a, an experience, a testing. Go downtown. Maybe you're going with someone that you love. Maybe you're going with a group of friends. As you go, stop in the middle of the street and just look up. Just look up and stare. Maybe point here and there. Do it for about 30 seconds. And if you stay there long enough, I'm sure those that are walking by you, maybe some won't, but some will stop and look up and see what you're looking at. And I believe that's a beautiful example of how worship should be done. What you have is a group of people that are already looking up. And those that are looking at them will realize who they're looking at and give it a little time and they will look up with you. And you will be completely eclipsed by the glory of Christ when you're enjoying him as a part of the body. Look up. I know sometimes that's hard technically when you're trying to do things and you're reading notes. I don't know how it's done. I get it. But may God by his grace enable you to come to a place as a team to worship in such a way where you disappear and people will worship with you. Congregation. For there to be a people to lead us in song does not mean that we do not participate. I can tell you that what will help the worship team worship is when they are standing before people who also worship. I can tell you that for preaching. You want to know what helps a preacher preach? When he's standing before people that are listening to him preach. 
Nothing will get a preacher more wild up when he sees a few people on their phones and looking at each other and looking at their watch and, and talking and just having a time when the word of God is being declared. And that's true for worship. That's just how it is. That's how it is. This is a collective experience. Guess what? Whether you're, not, whether you're part of the choir for Christmas or Easter, it doesn't matter. Biblically speaking, we're all part of a choir. You're a Christian. You signed up for singing. And it's so important to understand that every time you and I come to church, be prepared in your hearts to serve one another by singing. Let me say that again. Be prepared to come to church to serve one another by singing. That's not my idea. That's Ephesians 5.19. Look what the apostle says. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Wait, addressing God? Addressing God? No, addressing one another. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Corporate singing offers so much more to those who are directly involved in that setting. That is why Facebook Live is a terrible substitute for coming to church. This is an aid for those who cannot be a part of this. This is not a substitute. Because when you and I come together in this kind of a setting and we are drowning ourselves from the booming voices of other brothers and sisters that Facebook Live cannot offer, it does something to our souls beyond understanding. The Holy Spirit sees that when we collectively express from song, from our mouths as children of God, we can serve as spiritual balm to wounded souls in the same setting. There's healing in this. There's faith-building power in this. There is sobriety in this. There's a realignment in our understanding of our faith. When I come into a place like this, and there are other people who, when I walk in, some are lifting their hands, and some, their eyes are towards heaven, all at the same time singing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. I realize in that moment, as I join, I'm not in this thing alone. I realize that I was being persecuted by my family. As I'm being persecuted at work, that there's a group of people that are passionately declaring their devotion to Christ, and I'm not in this alone. To reserve our singing is to reserve balm for somebody that needs to be healed through a melody. This is not just theory. Have you ever wondered why you can go to a sports stadium, and there they are, thousands of people singing a, a tune or an anthem? What, what, why? Why, when there is a, a protest, are people singing to declare their protest? What's going on there? There's a bonding factor in song. There is a knitting of emotion and a declaring of unity over a certain thing. So I don't understand. Sports teams can do it, and protests can do it, and riots can do it, but the church, oh no. <laughs> emotion is a sin. So I can be emotional about everything else, and it's fine. But when it comes to God, it's a sin. To have emotionless singing is an oxymoron. Is it edifying for me to come up here and preach without emotion? Let's try it. Sing. It's important to sing. It glorifies God to sing. I'm not trying to be facetious here. I'm, I'm, trying, to be, I'm trying to make a point. You can't read the Psalms and divorce your emotions from expressing your song. What happened with Saul in 1 Samuel 
16.23. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Here is Saul being tormented by his spirit. And you know what the Bible describes for his remedy? When a man came into his presence and began to sing over him. And I can tell you that when you and I walk through this world, there is, there is a remedy when we come together in this place and declare the truth about who God is and his goodness. There is something for me and you when we do that. So as you and I come together, be prepared to serve one another by singing, refreshing reminders of who God is, the knowledge that other people are with me in this journey and are passionately pursuing the Lord as they burst forth in melody. You can't deny it, can you? You can't deny it when you walk into a room and people are booming their voices for God. It is faith-building. And I can tell you, I'll never forget the day that I spoke at a specific retreat. And the first night of that retreat, I sat in the back. And they were worshiping up here as a worship team. And every single person was on their cell phones or talking to one another, sitting down laughing. Do you think that built my faith? Was that, was that edifying? I'll tell you what happened. I wept. And I realized in that moment that this isn't a time to build people's faith up. This is a time to see if people are even saved. I'm not equating for us to not sing means that we are not saved. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that singing, surely, surely, is an expression of someone that has tasted something of God. So the congregation, I charge you not to take this as a, as a show. Don't do it. And I, I'll take it even further than that. Don't take the worship time here individually. This isn't me and Jesus time. This is us and Jesus time. This is not the same as putting earphones in your ear and listening to a specific worship song where you benefit from it personally and it doesn't require you to sing along with it. That is not what's happening in church. What's happening in church is that you and I are seeking to serve one another. Well, what if I don't know the song? It's a new song. Stumble through it. Just sing. Just sing. Well, what if the, the, the sound system makes that weird noise that sounds like a new instrument was added to the band? What, what about that? Or what about if the, the lyrics don't come up on time? Stumble as you sing. Because the church needs it. The church needs it. Lastly, the third dimension. What happens when we sing? What happens when we sing, we've come to our third and final portion. Why we sing, we understand. How we should sing, hopefully we have some kind of ground for it. But what happens when we sing, that's been answered to some degree up to this point. But I want to touch on another thing. And I think the best way to answer is to look at an example of it more than seeing instructions for it. I want us to look at two men who didn't have the luxury of a screen, who didn't have the luxury of a screen to read lyrics off of, who didn't have the luxury of a nice heated room so that they can move around more freely. They didn't have the luxury of sitting on nice, comfortable pews. These were two men that were wrongly accused of being in prison, two men that were bleeding from their back and perhaps even from their lips. They were shackled to the wall and to the floor in a dungeon, and they still sang. 
Turn your Bibles to Acts 16, 25 to 26. What happens when we sing? We get an example of it in this portion of Scripture. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. If there was anybody to have an excuse not to sing in a specific setting, it was these guys. Quite honestly. If there was anybody who had the permission not to sing, it was Paul and Silas, wrongly imprisoned. Who knows if they were going to make it out? Who knows how long they were going to stay there? Yet, these men saw it not only able, but appropriate in this time to actually muster up the strength and the energy to be able to declare the praises of God with a tune. And I see in this portion of scripture, three groups of people that were affected by singing. The first group were Paul and Silas. They weren't singing just because they had to, they were singing because they needed to. They knew the power of this thing. And you know what's so convicting about this portion of scripture? is that we would deem these men as spiritual men, right? Paul, come on, missionary, apostle, miracle worker by the power of God, evangelist, church planter. He's a spiritual man, alongside with Silas too. But you know what? These spiritual men were singing men. They sang. And more than that, I realized that they didn't have the band to help them in the prison which tells me that not only were they singing men, they were men who memorized songs, who equipped themselves with this weapon so that when it came to to a time where they weren't assisted, they knew how to engage in this expression of faith for the sake of their own souls. And I thought to myself, Lord, help me be able to, to, to know songs So that when I'm put in a a predicament where I don't have access to what we just did this morning, I would still be able to serve, yes, my own soul, but the soul of another. Think about a hospital room for a moment. And there is another saint and their dying breath. We can't pull in the screen in that moment. But that we would be so in tune with, with God's songs. And that we'd be able to sing them over a family that is grieving. Do you see? There's many more examples of this. This is a challenge to me personally. I'm talking three fingers to myself as I'm pointing one to you. These men memorized songs and they were able, who knows how many they sang. But the proof here is that suffering can be dealt with to some measure by a song from a broken heart even. I can personally testify to this. There have been times that I'm being vulnerable here. Where sometimes even in my alone time, so much is going on and it's, it's so demanding on my emotions even it can be. Where, where nothing can be mustered up. And sometimes I even have an instrumental, some worship instrumental playing on my laptop or my phone. And all for a sudden I, I know the tune and I know the song well enough to be able to just privately. Now I know we're going privately but still, privately just singing to God. Now, I'm not going to do it now. But let me testify to this. Something happens to the soul. Something happens to the soul where a song is being lifted up and now, now it's just you and God. And 
something about it being declared from your lips. Yes, praying can do that as well, and they were doing that, but something being declared from your lips, but also with a tune that, that again, it pulls on the emotions. And it lifts you up above the situation, the circumstances. It even lifts you up above other emotions. And I can testify to the freeing power of this thing. Is it immediate all the time? No, let's be realistic. But it is a weapon in the arsenal. It's a weapon in the arsenal, and these men engaged in it. They knew what to bring out in the right time. Paul and Silas, the second group of people that were benefiting from singing, what does it say here? And the prisoners were listening to them. What a strange sound that must have been to the prisoners. What a strange sound that must have been. As in the midnight hour, you had two men echoing their voices, probably even whimpering because of the pain in their bodies. As it came through those dungeon cells and echoed throughout those walls, what a strange sound it must have been. But they were listening to them. They were listening. Because singing, again, is not just vertical. It is horizontal. And not only is it horizontal for you and I, it says something to an unbelieving world. It says something to a watching unbelieving world. I'll never forget somebody who had told me, I didn't know this. If it wasn't for this person who told me, I would have never known it. That they came to visit this church on a particular Friday night. And they invited a long-term friend that they hadn't seen in a while to come and meet here. This person hasn't stepped into church, at least an evangelical one, for who knows how long. This was just recently. And this person sat through the meeting. And he left immediately. He didn't even get a chance to see the friend that invited him in the first place. But when they had the opportunity to talk over social media, he had expressed, the only thing he had expressed more than anything was that when he stepped into this place, he saw people singing. But when he saw the people singing, he knew that they meant what they were singing. And he knew that they really, really believed what they were declaring. And it touched them mightily. Because again, it engages the emotions. There's passion in it. There's volume in it. There's engagement of expression that mere speech cannot convey. And so it's a witness to somebody to see that collectively expressed. Because you never know, maybe not physical prisoners, but spiritual prisoners. You never know who's listening. You never know who's watching. It's a testimony. We can't deny that it's a testimony to see passionate people declaring the goodness of God. The last group, or the last type of person, rather, in this text that was affected by singing, it wasn't Paul and Silas, it wasn't just the prisoners, it was God himself. Because here it says in verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. I'm not saying that every time we sing, there's going to be an earthquake. That's a poor way of interpreting the scripture. But I do see a principle that I see throughout the Bible, and it is this. When you and I pray, when you and I sing, not just pray, we get God's attention. Oh, it might have been a foreign sound to the ears of these prisoners. Two men singing about this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, raised from the dead. But I'll tell you that it was a delight to the ears of those in heaven, especially God himself. And what it did what we see here is that God gave his attention to two men in a stinking prison hole. 
and he chose to manifest his presence in that context. For things to happen supernaturally in light of singing, that would be a wonderful thing. But I'm not going to say that that's a dogmatic doctrinal truth. But what I will say is this, that the fact that God gives attention to a singing man, a singing woman, is enough for me. Is enough for me. And I hope it is enough for you. That in the midst of this dark, adulterous, sinful generation where songs of Satan are being declared from a depraved generation that doesn't know their left from their right, God can see a remnant of people that are singing the songs of the righteous. A room filled with fragrance unto God in the midst of all the pollution that we are surrounded by. It was John Wesley who said, in paraphrase, don't get saved and sing half dead when you were in the world and sang so passionately the songs of Satan. What happens when we sing? We get God's attention. We serve one another in our, in our faith. And ultimately, we ourselves benefit when we are being faced with awesome truths about who he is, being ingrained in the depths of who we are. Never forget that singing is of great importance to the believer and to the church. To dismiss this is to dismiss a possibility of experience that we don't want to miss out on. So I encourage you, see it as an act of service to come into a place like this and to lift up your voice to the Lord. See it as a supernatural thing to lift up your voice in such a way. And there are times in which singing will invite joy into your heart and there are times in which joy will allow you to sing. In other words, there are times where you don't feel like it and you do it and something happens and there are some times where you feel like it and you do it because you feel like it. But all to say this, if your body lets you do it, and as long as you have a voice, make sure that you include yourself in that portion that we call worship time. Make sure. And I guarantee you, according to the authority of the Bible, it will change the way we experience the gathering of the saints. I can guarantee you that. Come on, let's just be real. Isn't it not true? How often that when we come out of a service, we mention the worship time. We talk about how edifying it was, how awesome, how passionate it was. This is, this is what we need. So let us not ignore or consider it less valuable than what it really is. And that's what we're going to do today. This is our first time breaking bread together. And we are going to, as an English service, make it a practice that every time we come to the table, we're going to take the elements go back to our seats, and we're not going to partake of it right away, but we're going to sing a song to help us remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so this is what we're going to do as we close in prayer. The worship team is going to come up. We're going to come down here, and we're going to line up as we do in combined service. You're going to take a piece of bread and drink. And as you return to your seats, do not um, partake of anything right away. The moment everybody has the elements in their hands, we're going to sing. And take the time to meditate upon these things. Take the time to meditate on your relationship with the Lord. If you're not a believer in this place, if you're not a Christian, this is something that is simply reserved for those who are, those who have professed their faith in Christ. This is not something for anybody. This is something for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so if that's you, come to this place, receive those elements, and then seek to worship the Lord in meditation by singing these words, and then we're going to take a portion of time before we break bread together to even seek the Lord on our own. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you put a song in our hearts. Help us believe that this is very precious to you and is very necessary for us. Lord, as we partake of your table, may we experience your fellowship in a new way. Lord, if there's anything we've held against another brother or sister, may we seek reconciliation before participating. Help us realize the holiness of this thing. Help us realize that this is your desire for us to remember and to look forward to the day that we will be with you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.